So uh, we've been covering the series on Easter for several weeks. Well, really, uh, Passion Week. We were going uh, through the um, uh, triumphal entry, and we talked about uh, Jesus' death on the cross on Good Friday, and then we had our Easter service discussing the resurrection. And last week, we kind of continued on with that a little bit. So today, we're headed back into a series that we've been doing for a while, the series on the letter of James. And uh, we actually, after today, we only have one more lesson in the book of James uh, before we end this series. Now, originally, when I planned this series, when I first made my very uh, basic outline of the entire series, I actually didn't plan to cover today's verse separately. Um, But every time I read this passage, I I just kept feeling like I need to speak on this on its own. Um, It just kind of stuck out to me that this is something that we need to talk about. And honestly, growing up, I don't think that we really talked about this passage that much. When I first read it, I actually felt like, I don't remember this passage. And I don't know why. I can imagine being in the South. There's probably some reasons for that. Um, But uh, nevertheless, I just didn't really remember it. And so when I read it, I just kept kind of speaking out to me, like, this is something we need to think about. And there is something important here for modern society, but not just for the secular world, but for us as Christians also. Now, before we get into James chapter 5, before we really think about the the content of the scripture reading today, I want to move back into the Old Testament and think a bit about Leviticus chapter 25, because there's a really important connection between the two. So Leviticus chapter 25, and we don't, we're not going to read it today, we don't have time to go through the entire passages there, um, but Leviticus 25 tells us a lot about how God thinks about how we conduct business, right? Now, I don't mean like leadership and, and so on. I mean, that's important, right? but that's not what I mean. I mean about how we make a living. How do we make money? How do we, how do we live? In Leviticus 25, God tells the people of Israel, he says, that the land and the people of the land are his. Really, they belong to him. The land and the people of the land belong to God. So according to God, rather than the Israelites being owners, the Israelites are more like tenants. They're, they're living in the land for a time, but they don't really own the land. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. <clears throat> and that had important implications uh, for the way that they were going to treat both the land and the people of the land. So first of all, just as there was a Sabbath rest on the seventh day of the week, so every Saturday you had the Sabbath, you had to have a day of rest, you did not work. Likewise, for the land, every seventh year, so every seven years there was a year of rest where they were not allowed to use the land, they were not allowed to grow crops on the land. They had to basically sit back and do nothing and trust in God to provide for their needs during that year. So they weren't supposed to work the land without rest. It's just not like year after year after year, you just keep working the land. They were supposed to respect even the land that God had given to them by giving it rest. Secondly, they were not to treat the people like just cattle, right? The people are not animals to be be used for their purposes. They were to treat the people with respect and with honor. They They were supposed to treat people as people who have been made in God's image. So rather than taking advantage of the poor... They were supposed to help the poor rather than using a fellow Israelites just as a means of a means of making profit. They were supposed to bless their brothers and sisters. That was the idea. And on the seventh year, like like the land had a year of rest on the seventh year, there was a year known as Jubilee. 
And any Israelite who owed any debt was to be set free from that debt on the seventh year. And even if he had sold property, let's say that he needed to sell property in order to uh, pay off some debt or whatever, he was supposed to get that property back. God says there that the land is not sold forever. That's not how you're going to treat his land. Rather, you're going to be looking out for other people. So this idea that everything belongs to God, that everything is his, was supposed to deeply change the way that they made their living and how they treated people and how they treated the land. In all of their dealings, the character of Yahweh, of God, right, of the God of the universe, was supposed to be reflected in everything that they did. So what James 5 does, what James does here in chapter 5, is he says that Old Testament principle still applies to us today. Some some people might come to like Leviticus and they say, well, that's Leviticus. That's the Old Testament, right? And I would say, yeah, you're right. That is the Old Testament. As Christians, we have an even higher calling. God's calling to us is even stricter than it was to the people of Israel, right? For the Israelites, God's commandment was, was basically about their own people. God's command was primarily about how the Israelites treated Israelites. Now, there were some uh, concerns about foreigners as well, but the large portion of it was focused on how Israelites treat Israelites. Um, but for us as Christians, we're supposed, to ch- we're supposed to think about how we respect and treat all people. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter where you live or where I live. It doesn't matter. I'm supposed to treat you with respect and with honor as someone made in the image of God. And not only that, it's not only about what I do, but God says it's about what's in my heart. It's not supposed to just change my deeds. It's supposed to actually change who I am in my heart. And so like the Israelites, our dedication to God and our knowledge of Jesus is supposed to change the way that we live our lives and the way that we do business. And it should change how we treat people and it should change how we treat God's creation. And I want you to imagine for a second, imagine if we dedicated ourselves to the same principles that we read in Leviticus 25. Imagine if we said, we're going to live out those principles today. How would that change the world? How would it change the world if every business in the world thought about things the way the Old Testament talks about the Israelites treating people? How would it change your life personally if you personally said, that's the way that I'm going to be? These are the things that we need to be thinking about. Um, And for James, he's really particularly concerned for people outside the Christian community. That's really who he's talking to when he's talking about the rich people specifically. But this applies to all Christians. There's something for all of us. Okay, so I want to help direct our thoughts by considering three concepts that are in today's reading. Okay, three concepts in today's reading. The temporality of riches, that is that riches are temporary the problem with riches, and finally, the true life-changing riches. So riches are temporary. Riches bring problems, but also that there are true life-changing riches that we can have. So let's think about those three. First, the temporality or the, temp- the fact that riches are temporary. So this point is really basic, and um, it's one of those things that's kind of a cliché, And we're so used to hearing it that we kind of easily overlook it. But James says, well, hold on, don't overlook this. So James is drawing from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus is like, you know, that that is his primary teaching if you really want to get down to it. I mean, there's a lot of teaching, obviously, Jesus gives. But if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, that is Jesus telling you, this is what 
God is about. This is what God's kingdom is about. And if you're going to be in God's kingdom, this is what you are supposed to be about, right? It's really the the heart of Jesus' teaching. And so in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21, here's what Jesus says. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now we'll get back to verse 21 in a minute, but let's focus first on verses 19 and 20. Jesus says we're not supposed to focus our lives around earthly possessions. Possessions are the things that we own here on earth. Now why? Why should I not focus my life around things here on earth? My my possessions here on earth? Well, because anything that we save here on earth... Anything that I store up here on earth is by its nature temporary. By its nature, it will not last forever. You know, one of the really interesting parts of James' description of the coming punishment for these rich people in chapter 5 is found in verse 3. Okay, he says that their gold and their silver, these material possessions that they had amassed at the expense of other people, he says they will eat your flesh like fire. <laughs> that's a pretty tough statement, right? It's going to eat your flesh like fire. That, that's kind of hard to hear. But the question is, how is that? How are their possessions, the things that they've built up in this life, going to eat their flesh like fire? What, is, what does that mean? Well, I want you to imagine for a second a man. Imagine a man who has saved up for years and years to buy a very expensive sports car. Okay, so he wants this, this, this sports car. He des- desperately wanted it. And it's way out of his price range. So he says, I'm going to save up for years. And so he has worked. He has made all kinds of sacrifices, right? He's given up um, his, a family. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't really have any friends. He's used, you know, he doesn't have leisure time. Um, he made all kinds of sacrifices so he could save money and buy this car that he desperately wanted. Okay, so he finally does it after many years right? He finally has the car. His dream has come true. He's in this car. He's driving it around. And, you know, the women are giving him attention. Women are looking at him and being like, oh, I like that guy. You know, he has a nice car. People watch him when he drives by. You know, they they do the the rubber neck where their head's like, whoa, you know, they watch him drive by in his car. It's everything he ever wanted, everything he's dreamed of. But then one day he's driving a bit too fast. He gets in a wreck. And the car is total, destroyed. And it's his fault, so insurance won't pay anything. Insurance says, nope, that's your fault. And on top of that, he's injured, okay? Now, I want you to think about how do you think he would feel? How do you think he feels in that moment? He has no money. He has no car. He has no family. He has no friends. And he's injured in the hospital. And he can't pay probably for his bills very well. How does he feel? He probably feels really tortured, by, by what his life what has happened in his life. He's going to feel eaten up by the sacrifice and everything. He's, he's lost everything. Everything that he valued is gone. Everything. And so now he just has this emotional torture and this hopelessness in his life because he has nothing left. Nothing. And that's part of what James is saying here. I mean, James, that's what James is trying to tell these rich people. When, when you devote your life to riches, when you say, that's what my life is about, and, and this can apply to other things too. When you devote your life to beauty, when you devote your life to property and material success, in the end, everything that you have relied upon, you will lose. You will. You have to. There's no other way for it to be. You will lose everything in the end. 
And the foundation, James is saying, the very foundation of your life, your very identity, you've built your identity on these things. Even that is going to be swept away and the only thing that's left is despair. Not only that, not only that, not only have you lost everything, but on top of that, all of that wealth that you amassed is actually going to testify against you before God. Right? We might think of like a drunk driver. If a drunk driver you know, is pulled over by a police officer and he gets out of the car or the police officer talks to him, the police officer can smell his breath and he knows you've been drinking. He, he knows it. His breath is, a, is a, a witness against the driver, right? And in the same way, James is saying for the rich people, their possessions are going to witness against them. They're going to say, you are guilty because look what you did instead of putting up treasures in heaven. The riches that these people had trusted in are going to betray them and testify against them. And so James is saying, you need to repent. Repent of this. But his words are also a warning to us, even if we aren't rich or don't think that we're rich, right? Because when we make material, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. (laughs) You don't have to be rich to be materialistic. And if we make material wealth our focus, if we store up treasure on earth rather than in heaven, then all we're doing is preparing agony, pain for ourselves. Because in the end, all of that will be lost. Um, You know, we kind of have a saying in America, you can't take a U-Haul to heaven. Now, you don't know what a U-Haul is, but in in America, that's how we rent, you know, we rent a big car, you bring all your stuff, that's when you move, you rent a U-Haul, you put everything in the U-Haul and you move it over somewhere. And the idea is you you can't do that when you die. You can't bring anything with you. And so the only thing that you'll be left with when you die is the rot of a soul that was given to greed and selfishness. So this leads to our second point. Okay, so the first point is riches are temporary. The second point is there's a problem with riches. Riches create a problem for us. Now, I, I think this is important to talk about here. So some people have said that they think it's a sin for a Christian to be rich at all. No Christians. There are people who have taught that, that Christians should never be rich. Um, and I, I don't really think that's right. Now, there are, the New Testament warns very frequently about amassing wealth, about loving money. The New Testament certainly warns about that, but it never says that being rich is a sin. It doesn't say that. Um, so I don't think that's the issue. The issue is not whether or not you are rich. The issue is not a rich person's wealth, but rather the way that they get rich and the way that they use their riches. Those are the issues. How did you get rich and how do you use what you have? Those are the problems that God is concerned with. The issue is the heart. What's actually in my heart and how does that heart display in my life and the way that I live, the way that I treat people, right? And there's two specific issues that James is concerned with here. Two specific issues, greed and injustice, okay? Greed and injustice. And I want to think about those two for a minute here. So the rich in James chapter 5, um, they, they've shown that they're greedy by hoarding wealth. So they've amassed all kinds of wealth. They've been hoarding money, hoarding land, hoarding resources. James says in verse 5, living in luxury and self-indulgence. Meanwhile, those around them are suffering and are in need. So all the people around them, these people around them are suffering, they're poor, they're in need, and these people are amassing things that these other people actually need. In fact, it says in verse 5, it says, they have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, that's an interesting kind of phrase. They've fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. What does that mean? 
Well, imagine this scenario, okay? Imagine that somebody's having a party, okay? So they're holding this big party. They've invited all their friends over. And maybe while they're having that party, just down the street, an apartment complex burns down and hundreds of people die. Okay, so you're having a party just down the street, an apartment burns down, and hundreds of people have died in it. And now, what would your natural reaction be? Would you be like, let's keep partying? No. Right, your natural reaction is, I want to maybe help. Is there something I can do? That, that would be a good reaction anyway, right? Certainly, you're not like, well, let's just ignore that, right? That, that's probably the correct reaction. But imagine instead of that, imagine instead of being troubled, instead of wanting to help, instead, you go back to eating and drinking and laughing like nothing has happened. You're just like, not my problem. And, and maybe, maybe you're even using extra water so that the firefighters need to try to put out the fire. They need those resources and you're like, no, we're having a party here, right? That, that's kind of what James is describing here. People who are so focused on their own pleasure that they do not care about the suffering of others. The concern is about what I have and what I get. And if you suffer, that's not my problem. They can look around, they can see people suffering, even dying, and they just don't care. So much so that they wait, they have abundance that they're wasting while others are lacking basic necessities, right? That's what greed does. Greed says it's all, the only thing that matters is me and what I want. Now, the interesting thing, of course, and, and this is really the challenge, greediness is one of those things that everyone says is for somebody else, right? It's never for me. It's always somebody else's problem. No one thinks that they're greedy. Somebody might say, okay, yeah, I have an anger problem. I have a problem with lust. You know, I have a problem with gossip, whatever. People might say that. But very few people are like, yeah, I'm a really greedy person. You know, most people don't think that. We can see those other sins, but we can't see greed very easily. Greed is something we see in other people, not so much in me. And um, the uh, preacher Tim Keller makes a great point about this. He says that basically the reason is because unlike most sins— there is not a clear outward sign of greed. Greed does not have one single clear outward sign. So somebody who has an anger issue, like you immediately know when you see them burst out in anger, that person has an anger issue. It's obvious, right? Somebody who gossips, it's an obvious problem that you can see. There's all those things are very obvious. But greed is one of those that's really hard to kind of see on the surface. For example, one man could give $100,000 with a greedy heart, but that another man could give $100,000 with a very generous heart. Likewise, one person could give, t- give 10 cents out of a very greedy heart, while another person could give 10 cents out of a very generous heart, right? So that's the thing. There's not a clear sign. It's not the amount that you give that necessarily tells whether you're greedy or not. So the question is, how do we tell the difference? How can I look at my own heart and say, I'm greedy or I'm not greedy? How do we test our heart? And I think James gives us two tests, two ways to test our hearts, that we can see our hearts honestly. And the two tests are this. One, where am I storing up treasure? And two, how do I treat people with my money? Those those are two things that James gives us. Where am I storing up treasure? And how do I treat people with my money? So remember what James says. He says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. You've laid up treasures in the last days. So what are the last days? Last time, when we were finishing up talking about the resurrection, we saw that God's new creation has already begun in Jesus. And that the day is coming when God's full justice, his full glory will fill the earth. 
That's, that's the promise of scripture. And that's what James means when he talks about the last days. The present order of things is soon going to come to an end. And God is going to bring his kingdom in fullness, that the new creation that we've talked about. And so the question for us, says James, is, are you laying up treasures in this current temporary order or in the eternal order that has already begun in Jesus? And so the question is, how do I do that? How do I lay up treasures in heaven? Um, I mean, it kind of seems like, how, how could I even do that? How could I lay up a treasure in heaven, <laughs> right? I can't go to heaven right now, so how can I put treasure in heaven? What, do I, what does that mean? Well, and the answer is actually really simple. It's by how we treat people with the things that God has blessed us with now. That's it. You lay up treasures in heaven by how you treat people with the things that God has given to you now. And notice that starts with you understanding this is something God has given to me. No matter how hard you have worked for it, no matter what you have done, everything that you have is a gift of God. It starts with that. If you don't believe that, greed is going to be the natural course of your heart. But if you really understand my ability to do these things, my health, my you know, brain state, my intelligence, where I, have, where I grew up, my family, all of these things are a gift of God, then you can start seeing this is something to be used to glorify him. Okay, so it starts there. But ultimately, it does matter how we're going to treat people with these things. And that's how we lay up treasures in heaven. So, you know, my bank account, my gold, my jewelry, that expensive car, anything that, you know, sort of makes me, solidifies my status and says, I'm rich, I'm powerful or whatever, that's all destined to be swept away with the old order. That old order and those things are going to be swept away with it. But every act of supporting the poor and the vulnerable Every act of encouraging my brothers and sisters, especially when it involves sacrifice of the things that God has given, that will last forever. That will last forever. It will always be there, right? And that's how you lay up treasures in heaven. Because what you're doing is it's not just you're putting things in a place, but rather you are dedicating your life and your actions to God's kingdom. You see, the greedy heart is one that focuses on the present order. The greedy heart says, you know what? I would be happy if the present order continued forever as long as I get to benefit from it. But the generous heart is the one that acts with an eye towards God's coming kingdom and says that day has already begun in Jesus. It's going to come fully and I want to be a part of that and I'm going to live like that's true. That's where the generous heart begins. But there's a second problem with riches. A problem which I think is more easily masked and kind of overlooked than greed, and that's injustice, right? Greed is kind of one of those things that you can sort of see, but injustice is one of those things that's really easy to hide and cover up. The Bible shows repeated concern for justice and human affairs. In the Old Testament, many laws were written to make sure that people were treated fairly, and especially that the poor and the vulnerable were not taken advantage of. Repeatedly, that is shown in the Old Testament. So we looked at Leviticus chapter 25. That's one example. But there's many other passages, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 15 uh, warns employers to pay their workers quickly on the same day. Um, and that was because those people needed that money that day. That, they needed their day's wage. And so if you didn't pay them that day, it could cause big problems. Deuteronomy 24 verse 17 um, warns against taking advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, Le- Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 22. Uh, this is a really interesting one. We were talking about this after uh, Japanese worship. But Leviticus 23 and verse 22 tells the people of Israel 
that they were not allowed to plow their entire field. They had to leave the edges of their field available for the poor and the sojourner. They were not allowed to do their entire field. And um, that, was, that was purely to look out for those people who were in need. So you see, justice in the biblical sense is not only about fair treatment. That's part of it. It is about fair treatment. But justice in the biblical sense is not only treating people fairly, but also generosity towards the poor and concern for the vulnerable. And that is absolutely necessary for God's people. But the rich people of James chapter 5 have totally perverted justice. So first, they kept back money that they owed their workers. So they had this money that they should have been paying their workers, and they weren't paying it to them. They were getting the work, but through kind of tricks and deceit, they managed to cheat their workers out of money that they should have been paying them. Now, keep in mind, most of these workers had very little money. So again, if they didn't get paid one day's wage, there was a good likelihood their family wouldn't eat that day. So this was a big deal for those people. And the thing is that the the rich of James 5, they not only don't care about the suffering that they're causing. So they're causing the suffering, but it's not just that. They're benefiting from the suffering that they're causing. They're causing suffering, and then they're benefiting from it. They're getting rich by cheating their workers, by using excessive resources, and even wasting what is needed by the very poor people that they're cheating. So it's easy for us, you know, again, to look at this passage and think, well, that's not me, <laughs> you know. I mean, hopefully you've never cheated someone or held money back that you owed them. I mean, I hope not. But we live in a world today where many of the systems around us are built to take advantage of the poor and to funnel money and power all in one direction. That's the way many systems are built that way. So even if the systems don't steal directly, they're certainly still abusive in their nature. I mean, a simple example of this is like gambling, Right. A lot of gambling casinos, like I think about them in the U.S. I mean, I don't know how they operate in other places, but like in the U.S., we have a lot of casinos. And a lot of those casinos are built to basically take advantage of poor people and people who are in need and to, you know, take that money and put it in a certain another direction. Um, we might think of systems that encourage people to go into massive debt, require, requiring them basically to be slaves to a bank their entire lives. Um, there's many business practices that do the same things. You know, there's, again, I don't know about all the other countries. I don't even know about Japan, but I know in America, some people will kind of control working hours. And if you pay, if you, if a person works for 40 hours a week, then you have to pay benefits. But if they work like 38 or 39, whatever, like you don't have to. So a lot of people will, will say, well, you can work up to 38 or 39 hours, but we're not going to give you that extra one because we don't want to have to pay you benefits. Right. Um, or, you know, using laws to avoid paying minimum wage and so on. And I, I know that's a problem in my own country. I'm sure it's a problem in other countries, too. I mean, I know about, you know, other countries where there's like sweatshops, where even major brands use forced labor, you know, to make things cheaply. And, you know, it's easy for us to benefit from these systems and just kind of overlook it. Well, that's not my problem. You know, that's not happening to me. It's not happening to my family. It's somewhere far away. So no big deal. But as a Christian, it should be a big deal. Because if I'm benefiting while somebody else is suffering, that's something that I need to take seriously. I don't benefit on the back of another person who is being mistreated. I don't benefit from the mistreatment of another human being. That's something that we should be dedicated to. And so Christians need to be people who are radically dedicated to the fair treatment of others, dedicated to honesty and integrity, dedicated not to not getting rich off of the oppression and mistreatment of another human being. And so Christians should also be some of the best bosses, some of the best employers, some of the best business owners on the planet because we don't take advantage of people. That's how it should be. 
Now, I'm not telling you I have all the solutions, right? I don't. Um, the situation today is, is complicated. But I do know that, again, we need to take seriously not only what we personally are doing, but also the systems that we participate in that are abusive towards other people. Um, we need to consider whether our convenience and our comfort, or rather the issues of greed and injustice, are going to take center, the center place in our hearts. If we don't care about the suffering of other people, if we're just happy to be comfortable and rich in the safety of our own home, then there's probably a spiritual problem at play. And that problem may be that we are laying up treasures on earth instead of in heaven. So the question is, you know, there, there, there's the hard stuff, right? So that, that's like, here's how it's supposed to be. And that could be a tough, things, a tough thing to hear. So the question is, how do we respond? What are we supposed to do? And there's actually two questions here, okay? The first is, how should the oppressed person respond? How should somebody who is being mistreated respond to mistreatment? And then the second question is, how do I take greed and injustice out of my own heart? How do I get that out of my heart? So I want to take a, think about those two things briefly, and then we'll close. So first, how should the oppressed respond? And I think verses 6 through 8 really lay out the right response here. So the rich here in uh, James chapter 5, they've condemned and murdered the righteous person. They've stolen his wages. They've made it impossible for him to even survive. And what does James says that that, that uh, oppressed person do? How does the oppressed person respond? He says, he does not resist you. The uniform, the constant message of the New Testament is this. The response of Christians to oppression is never that of violence. Never. That is the constant teaching of the New Testament. We do not respond with violence to those who mistreat us. Instead, James says two things are in order. First, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then second, wait for the precious fruit and establish your hearts. So the correct response for Christians to oppression and mistreatment is not raging violence, not revenge, but patient, fruitful living, trusting in God to bring justice. This is what Romans 12 and verse 19 says. Romans 12 and verse 19. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Christian response to oppression is not to ignore it. Don't misunderstand. Christians do not ignore oppression. We don't pretend it doesn't exist, but we do trust God to repay what is being done that's wrong. God will not overlook oppression. He will not ignore our suffering. God will make sure that those who are oppressing people, that those who are mistreating people, they will pay before God. God will see that vengeance is done. He will see that justice is brought. So we can leave it in his hands, knowing that he will do it perfectly. Because if I seek, if I seek justice, there's probably going to be just further injustice, right? How many people, because they're seeking revenge, have brought more injustice out of their seeking of that justice, right? So that's what happens when humans seek justice on our own terms. We just create more and more injustice. But when we leave it to God, he will always bring perfect justice. So we can leave it in his hands. We can call people to repent with boldness and allowing the Lord to make sure that justice is done. And in the meantime, we can be fruitful, sowing seeds of justice, sowing seeds of righteous living, of grace and forgiveness and so on. That is the Christian response. I think a great example of this is someone like William Wilberforce. Okay, William Wilberforce uh, worked for many years in England against the slave trade. And he actually, he not only worked in England, he worked in other countries as well. 
And he never became violent. He was not a violent man. He was not a revolutionary. He wasn't starting a war. He's just, just always saying, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. He never stopped calling out for the mistreated and the oppressed. And he did this precisely because he knew what we're talking about today, that God's people take greed and, uh, greed and injustice seriously. So we don't ignore oppression, either of ourselves or of other people, certainly. It's right to call out those who do evil. When people are doing evil, it's right for us to say, you're doing evil. That's wrong. That's the right thing to do. But our resistance is never violent or abusive, right? We, we trust God to repay. So that's issue number one. The second issue, though, is, okay, what about the greed and injustice in my own heart, though? Right? It's easy to look at the greed and injustice in somebody else, but what about me? How do I get that out of my heart? And again, the key verse is especially verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, these, this verse does apply to the innocent poor in James that were being mistreated, but it applies most of all to Jesus Christ. Remember what we're told about Jesus in Isaiah 53 in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. When Jesus was being oppressed, when Jesus was, was facing injustice, he didn't resist them. He accepted it. Jesus is ultimately the real righteous one who the rich and the wealthy in Jerusalem condemned and murdered un unjustly. And just like we learn from Jesus how to face oppression and mistreatment, we also learn what it means to live a life that is selfless and sacrificial. Now, I want you to listen to this verse. This is such an important verse. It's going to be our verse for the Lord's Supper today. And this is a key verse for us to understand in overcoming the greed and injustice in our own hearts. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is the only thing that will weed out greed and injustice from your heart. Nothing else will do it. You have to look to Jesus and know what he did for you. Jesus, the one who, who existed before the world began, the one by whom and through whom everything was created, he who had all things, worshipped by the angels, came to earth as a poor Jewish boy to a poor family in an oppressed time, lived in the middle of nowhere, and he accepted oppression, he accepted injustice, all so you could receive the immeasurable gift of eternal life. He did that for you so he could give to you. He accepted injustice so you could get a blessing. He gave up everything so that you could get everything. You see, that is who Jesus is. And if you want to see your heart changed, that is the only thing that will change it. It was only the good news of the gospel that can weed out the greed and the tendency towards injustice that is in our own hearts. When we see Jesus becoming poor, so that we can become rich. When we see Jesus facing injustice, so that we don't have to face God's righteous justice, that alone removes the greed from our hearts and replaces it with generosity. That alone removes that bent towards injustice and says, I'm going to care now about justice because we see who Jesus is. So if you want to see that in your life, if you want to see less greed and more generosity, if you want to see less injustice and more concern for justice and righteousness in this world, then look towards Jesus and he will replace, he will change our hearts so that we have an active love for the poor and the oppressed. Not just a passive thing where we're like, oh, those poor people and they don't do anything. An active love that actually seeks their good and identifies with them and seeks to bless them with the things that God has given to us.
Let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gifts that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, you have given us immeasurable blessings in Jesus. You've given us the gift of eternal life. You've given us the gift of hope, of of resurrection, of of the new creation, of being in your kingdom and your presence forever. And you've given us your spirit now. You've given us so many glorious spiritual blessings in heaven. And all because Jesus was willing to give up everything for us. Father, I pray that that same heart would be in us. I pray that you would transform our hearts by the power of the gospel, by the power of your spirit, so that we would be people who show concern for the poor and the oppressed, that we would be people who don't seek to benefit off of the suffering of other people, but rather that we would be people who boldly stand up for those who are being mistreated and people who are willing to make sacrifices to serve those who need it. Um, Father, we know that is the example that we see in your son Jesus, and we are so grateful for it, and we are sorry that we fail short of that so often, and we're so grateful for your grace But Lord, please help us never to take advantage of that grace or to attempt to to foolishly think that we can, but instead to allow that grace to change our hearts so that our hearts are more filled with grace and generosity and love and service towards others. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love. We pray this in his name. Amen.